Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Between the two of us, Cameron and I probably spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about the intersection of theology and the arts. We're both writers, both interested in how theology can inform and shape our creativity. So it's no surprise that the commentary returns again and again to this theme. Even for people who don't share our interests, this is an important topic to reflect on, because human creativity is one of the most powerful forces shaping the culture we live in and serve. In this episode, Cameron has a book recommendation to make, and it happens to be one that I agree with wholeheartedly. If you want to go deeper into questions of theology and art, we're going to give you a great place to start. A couple of weeks ago, we devoted an episode to a book recommendation of mine, and now the tables turn, and we're going to devote an episode to a recommendation of Cameron's. There's an interesting history behind this because, as some listeners will know, Cameron is working on his MFA in creative writing and poetry. You may think, wait a second, doesn't Cameron already have a master's degree in theology? Yes, he does. But now he's working on a second one, and as part of that work, he's had to do some research and write about a particular book that we're now going to discuss, which is Jeremy Begbie's book, A Peculiar Orthodoxy, Reflections on Theology and the Arts. So Cameron, what was so important to you about reading Begbie's book? That's a good question. So I think it was it was something like this. In my mind, there's kind of a division between what's cool and popular and trendy as an artist, as a writer, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the my beliefs about faith, the the things that I believe about God, and um, you know that theology degree that you just mentioned, all of that stuff I've learned over there. And then what I'm trying to do with my poetry, there is a bit of a division between those. And what I, what I sense that Begbie's doing in this book is he's trying to say, Hey, look, we can actually bring those together a little bit yeah, you know, or, or entirely. So I think that's what he's trying to do with the book. And that's why I wrote the paper on it. So for those who don't know, Jeremy Begbie is really an interesting character. So he's a theologian, but a theologian with a deep knowledge of music who brings those two things together. I first heard him speak at the Art and Soul Conference at Baylor in 2004, where he was seated at the piano, illustrating his points on the keyboard. Of course. He did a a, a really wonderful interview presentation with Mars Hill Audio back in the day. And a lot of people sort of my generation were introduced to him through that. And he's done a lot of wonderful work 
in that area of the theology of the arts. And so, yeah, I think the tension you're talking about is one that I've, I've seen as well. On the one hand, the, the desire to live faithfully, to, to embody a theology. And on the other hand, a sort of, let's say an interest in creativity and not following the rules mm-hmm. and kind of making the rules up for yourself even. And to add to that, what Begbie says in the beginning is that he senses that there's been sort of a, a renaissance even of art and faith interests in America, at least over the last however many decades. And lots of people are talking about, you know, how my creativity and my faith intersect. And I, I see that and I agree with that. And there are plenty of examples. What he's saying, though, is he's noticing kind of this reluctance in in parts of that crowd to actually embrace a, f- a full-throated orthodoxy or to yeah i mean i'll just leave it there like there there's maybe um, an interest in mystery or or kind of a negative theology is you know very popular we don't want to say too much we don't want to pin down god so it would be better if we just sort of talk spiritually but not theologically and and i want to say at the start before we go any further like i sympathize with not wanting to pin god down i sympathize with with those with those feelings to a degree however i think begbie's pushing us in the direct in the right direction he's saying the church has given us this wonderful inheritance this thing called creedal orthodoxy is what he calls and with it scriptural imagination is kind of another like coined term that he wants to use both of those things he thinks are essential for the the artist of faith not just like oh well, that's what you do at church but like no that's that's what you bring to your work and that's how you actually create something that's that's good that's rich and faithful ultimately to to scripture i think mm-hmm. i know the tension between let's say dogmatism and creativity didn't start recently right. and there's there's enmity on both sides i know that a lot of people who grew up in the church but have a creative bent probably experienced a certain degree of discouragement in the church for that creativity a lot of times you get the impression that uh, we don't want you to ask questions. We just want you to believe the right stuff. We'll tell you what the right stuff is. And, and this isn't really a place for creativity or creative expression. I do agree that more recently that's turned around in some ways and that there's a desire that the church has more generally to speak to creative people or to speak in creative ways. And there's certainly been a... a a re- revitalization of that conversation. My own experience of it, though, is that in those spaces of conferences and communities, they're focused specifically on theology and art. The only kind of theology that really interests people is the kind that overlaps with aesthetics. Mm. That if if I were describing, like, like what is the 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 creed of you know creative communities like that 
overwhelmingly it's it's like whatever we've borrowed from this tradition or that tradition that speaks to creativity that becomes kind of the whole focus of our faith and and i think that's a way of of taking the other side of the tension like i grew up in a church where people stifled my creativity and now i've created for myself an experience of church which is only focused on creativity mm-hmm. Which is, is ironically, the same dichotomy just flipped the other way. And so I think what's appealing about a book like Begbie's is that there's a call for like a fuller picture, hmm. like that where, where there can be like a real orthodoxy living with a real creativity and, and, yeah. and that they can be nurturing one another. Yeah. Well, so I'm curious how you've navigated this uh, big question i know but everyone listening knows that you're also a novelist in addition to being a pastor so you are threading that needle <laughs> and and i'm just curious what as someone who holds to a, a particular a peculiar orthodoxy even right. you know right. how, how do you bring that to your work well you know that's the way I encountered Jeremy Begbie for the first time was exactly in that quest that after I finished grad school, um, I had it in my head that my theology should influence my work somehow. I didn't know how, I wasn't sure exactly how that worked. And I would say the first few years of that quest were basically me trying to find people who had already done the work who could then give me the results of the work Mm. so that I could move on and just write books. I wasn't actually interested in theologizing for myself. I just assumed this has already been done. I just, somebody give me sort of what's the book I need to read or whatever it is. And, and, and I read a lot of good books along the way that were recommended to me that really helped, but I, I don't think I ever really, answered that question you know i think it it is still for me a an ongoing internal struggle slash pilgrimage Mm -hmm. where i'm still finding out some of how those things live together Mm -hmm. but but i'd say generally speaking for me the the way that it ended up working certainly as a novelist was i was not personally drawn to telling um what we might say like like overtly Christian stories. Like I wasn't writing stories where people were, were, you know, grappling with their faith. I wasn't doing quote unquote spiritual writing for me. It was almost um, a combination of two things. I'd say on the one hand, dealing with Christian ideas. So the ideas that I was interested in in working out in my stories were were Christian ideas and kind of figuring out what they mean and, and, and how they, impact the world. And then on, on another level, I would describe what I try to do as almost iconographic, that there's a part of my storytelling that is about creating <laughs> images that are perceptible, perhaps only to the author, <laughs> because he may not be good enough at this for other people to realize it. But but where I'm kind of enacting scenes or, or, or even poses or gestures of characters and things like that, that, that to my mind connect back to uh, Christian images or narratives or that sort of thing. So there's, there's a, 
because it's a, a verbal art, you can make pictures through description, but there's a, a level of imprecision that there wouldn't be with film where, where it's, it's still ambiguous. Whereas right. if, if you go around posing everybody like, like he's on a cross, <laughs> you know, on a, in a movie, they'll say, I think that's a Christ symbol, but, yes. but in, in, in fiction, it can be a little more subtle than that. And so, mm. um, that's kind of, you know, along big lines is practically speaking ways that I've, I've pursued it, but it's as, as any artist knows, the, the world of creativity is so vast that the way you answer that question may vary from work to work. And the real, maybe fundamental question that I think Begbie's book, surprisingly for me, really engages with is where the resources come from on that journey. Because I think one of the reasons why people are skeptical of orthodoxy is because they, they associate it with a kind of deadness or a, um, yeah, we, we think we already know all the answers. And so we're not going to sort of creatively right. imagine any longer. And, and so we kind of dismiss out of the gate, the possibility that that spiritual imagination is there for us as a, as a resource and a, a sort of uh, treasure hoard. Mm. And for me anyway, that is kind of what drew me into orthodoxy number one, but, but reformed orthodoxy in particular, like I, I got here by looking for that imaginarium, you know, mm. looking for, uh, a theology that would somehow nurture and enrich the creative work that I felt called to. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, what I love about this book, so, so Peculiar Orthodoxy is a collection of writings that uh, Begbie published in a variety of places. And then each chapter has kind of a, a little introductory note, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> I guess orienting us where where the original context of this work was, that sort of thing. But but it's bookended in an interesting way. So I, I feel like the, the book opens with a kind of invitation to orthodoxy as as a, a place for a creative person to draw great insight from. Mm-hmm. And then the the closing is a, a chapter devoted specifically to the reformed tradition and specifically the ways that reformed theology could be especially helpful in a conversation about theology and art. So ways that, you know, our faith and, and just basic structures of thought in that faith. He, he talks a lot about the creator creature distinction, for example, the way that, reform people think about language and God's self-revelation, that these can be really helpful. Even Calvin's doctrine of the Lord's Supper is mm-hmm. is something he uses as a helpful um, guidepost in, in the larger conversation about presence and sacraments and the arts, that sort of yeah. thing. And so I think what I love about this book and, and why I'm glad that that you've recommended it is that in a lot of ways, I feel like parts of my journey are reflected here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's interestingly saying things that, I mean, he's been saying since, you know, 2004 and, and, and before that. And, you know, I, I heard him in my 30s and now I'm a little bit older and it's all sort of landing 
with even greater force now yes. that I that I maybe understand right. where he's coming from more. Yeah, I love that idea of tradition as as a gift. Uh, one of the one of the other resources I use in my paper, which is he's very very related to Begbie, is Scott Cairns, mm-hmm. who happens to be the director of my program. I found this essay of his called elemental confusion and he in that essay makes the very same claim that traditions of all sorts really but especially for the artists of faith um you know creeds orthodoxy they are an inheritance and an inheritance is not something that you protect or or, or squander or whatever, but that you actually kind of build upon. And he, he compares it wonderfully to the parable of the talents in the Gospels. And he says, you know, G- when the, not, not Jesus, but the, the landlord in, you know, in the parable comes back to the three men who he'd given talents to, the ones that had invested their talents, the ones who had gained interest on it were the ones that, are commended and Karen's in his essays, like that's kind of what we're supposed to be doing with tradition. Tradition is not just this thing that we're trying to defend with our work. And maybe that's the fear of some that if you're into orthodoxy and doctrine, that you're just concerned with, you know, hair splitting in your work. Well, you know, God is this and not this, whatever. That's not really what's going on. Tradition is meant to be this, resource that I invest and then kind of create out of, I guess it's a, it's a resource. It's a, a wellspring. So I want to give one example of how Cairns himself does this, which I find really fascinating. So I think he's a good example of a contemporary who's using this biblical imagination to inform his work. Now he's not reformed. (laughs) Um, He's Orthodox with a capital O, but he goes back to to the Hebrew word for word, actually. Um, I don't know. Is it kadov or something like that? Uh, that's not right. But <laughs> There's a Hebrew word, one of, the, one of the Hebrew words for word. He notes, is much more, it's, it's much more uh, layered, interesting than, than how we normally think about words. In Hebrew, words have kind of an agency, almost a power. And of course, you see this in the creation story when God creates by speaking. And you see it as Jesus being the word. All of these beautiful examples of like this powerful, rich imagery of, of word in scripture. And essentially, his conclusion is like, hey, the Bible sees words as really dynamic. So why don't we? And he's a poet. So he's he's taking this really interesting idea of words and trying to use them in his own work to, to create poems that are incredibly suggestive. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's open to the idea that a word can suggest lots of things that it, that it actually has this work on a reader, just like, um, you know, just like a tradition is meant to create something new in us. He wants words to kind of have that same effect. And I, I found that really fruitful. And I think that's a good example of how, the biblical imagination can shape your own thinking first off and then his his work now too so 
I it, like, yeah. yeah, I like the idea of building on tradition and, yeah. and sort of channeling it, so to speak. And I think that it's important too to see the, the sort of polyphonic way that this works when we talk about creativity, because there's a, I don't know, like, like uh, a way of approaching theology that really does see it as a museum exhibit something you know pristine and and finished and behind the rope mm-hmm. and it's it's a mistake to confuse our theology with let's say like the reality of god or the mind of god right. as if we've somehow captured and expressed and and said everything there is to say or you know whatever it is really our theology and certainly our, our, our creeds and confessions are if anything like a framework and a starting point and in creativity, we, we take those starting points and really, you know, carry them in many different directions that are very subjective. But what's happening is something more like application, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, that, that um, we're not, well, I'm certainly not writing a novel in order to extend the boundaries of the Westminster Confession. Like it, it, it's not... I, it's it's two different things going on here, yeah. but but I'm taking an influence and kind of working it out narratively in ways that are exploring things that are touched on there and exploring those things in a way that is particularly um, bound by by my identity and who I am as a as a craftsman. So so it bears a resemblance to the way that you might you know, be taught something by Christ and then apply it to your life. Yeah. You know, Jesus says, live this way or do this. And and you say, well, let me try that out and <laughs> see how that works. And in the realm of ideas, that's something a novelist might do. You know, here's this theology, here's this teaching, here's this way of seeing the world. Let me try that out <laughs> in this story. Let me try that out in this poem, in this metaphor, in this image. And what's being added isn't really a uh, like, like a new doctrine, mm-hmm. right? It's it's more you know a new expression, new experience, new kind of trying on experimentation with with those ideas. But but ultimately, what it shows is how productive, how full of energy and full of life and possibility orthodoxy is, right? Right, that it doesn't actually need to be behind that velvet rope, protected from our use of it. That mm. that things that are true can go out in the world and and can not only fend for themselves, but but actually do good and and produce beauty and and all of those things. And so, I think at its best, a commitment to orthodoxy comes from a confidence in that truth, mm-hmm. a willingness to see it like engaged with and, and become the basis for creative expression. So it is important, I think, to continue to bear witness in both directions. You know, I, I, I want to see uh, creative people encouraging the church to be more and more concerned about supporting and resourcing the arts. And I also want to see 
the Orthodox. <laughs> I want to see the church. I want to see teachers more and more concerned with, with, with supporting and encouraging artistic expression, not just within the bounds of the church or like a worship service, but in the larger world, you know, in the, in the way that we would support any work being done to the glory of God. And so I feel like this is a good book for anyone who has felt that same tension between creativity on the one hand and orthodoxy on the other, has felt a pull maybe to go in one direction or the other, to have to make a choice. This is a book that might help you figure out how how both of those things can be part of your calling and can actually contribute to one another right. and that you don't have to choose mm-hmm. between orthodoxy and creativity. Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly it. And we're kind of leaving out the middle chapters, but sure. those middle chapters are, are examples of artists, writers who have done this in the past. So for anyone listening, if you're wondering, like, what does this look like? He gives he gives examples from Bach to, to George Herbert and, and others how they were galvanized by their deep theological beliefs and how those beliefs enable them really to create incredible works of art that we still enjoy today. Yeah. I think we should, we should do a little bit of like greatest hits call out just, just some moments in the book that are especially good. Um, One of the things anybody familiar with Jeremy Bagby will know, like one of his recurring emphases is on uh, art and sentimentality like the importance of art and beauty in opposition to mere sentimentality. Mm -hmm. So there's a chapter called beauty, sentimentality and the arts. And I actually quoted from this chapter in a sermon of mine, maybe I don't know. It's probably been like two years ago. He he has a, a quote from George Steiner that I shamelessly ripped off. And and so I, I deeply hope that somebody listening to this was, Oh, I remember the sermon where you (laughs) quoted George Steiner. Yeah. But uh, that's always been a big thing to me as well. And, and maybe I get it from my exposure to Bagby, kind of a, a aversion to sentimentality in art, especially in Christian art, where I think there can be a, a tendency towards that kind of sentimentality. There's also a, a chapter devoted to Bach, and because you know, we've done at Grace some some stuff with with Bach. I think that's uh, we were talking earlier about this. It's 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 fascinating to the extent that I can understand it. But once he gets into like the 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 deep musical technique, uh, I'm quickly lost. But but it's uh, good stuff. The chapter I spent most of my time in was on George Herbert's mm. poetry, and I, I love. George Herbert and actually hadn't read the poem that uh, Begbie focuses on, which is, I think, Ephesians 430 or something. But um, it's a really cool example, again, of how actually reform theology is kind of at play in in Herbert's thinking. In, in particular, it's the way that he thinks about the Holy Spirit working through human agency. So, again, kind of like complex, deep stuff, but but really cool. And I would recommend that one. I will also say just in general that I, I really like the footnotes throughout. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a lover of footnotes and especially books where the footnotes 
include little asides and, oh, and yeah. explanations and also maybe a roadmap of everything you should be reading if you're interested in this. Yes. And I think this book in particular, I found myself, uh, which I don't always do, but highlighting footnotes <laughs> in a way that, <laughs> that I, I began to wonder, like, where's my focus here? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's not a super long book. This is, let's see, like 200 pages or so. And if you're not familiar with Bagby, this wouldn't be a bad introduction because it is a book I think you can dip into and do sort of mm -hmm. the chapters on the the writers you're interested in. And it would be more accessible perhaps than like one of his bigger books, A Voice in Creation's Praise or something yeah. like that, that, that uh, is, is a tour de force. So yeah, anybody interested in theology and the arts, I think Jeremy Bagby is one of those figures you really need to have on your radar screen. Mm -hmm. Well, Cameron, thanks for the recommendation. It's it's. I'm excited that you've recommended a book that I love too, <laughs> and uh, we can both kind of enthuse about. And uh, we we will continue to make hopefully good recommendations for reading in the future. Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.